0: Easter is a great Sunday to preach on. Um, it, everybody knows what you're going to talk about. You don't have to really choose your passage or choose your topic. There's a pretty narrow range, and everybody knows what you're going to be talking about. And it's, uh, it kind of preaches itself, right? If you've been talking about the gospel at all in your church, by the time you get to Easter, it should preach itself. My, the way my dad, who was a preacher, would put it is, on Easter Sunday, you, just, you throw a fastball right down the middle. And those of you who know me, you know that I tend to favor curveballs, but even for me on Easter, it's, it's, a, it's a fastball right down the middle. And that's probably what you would have gotten from me today if I hadn't gone through a pretty life-changing experience two months ago. Two months ago tomorrow, uh, my brother died at 39 years old of a sudden freak cardiac event. It was completely unexpected. It caught us all off guard, and uh, my life has not been the same since, in a couple of different ways. On the one hand, obviously, I'm working through grief uh, for my brother, and then tied in with that is this Kind of crisis that I went through. We, we went, so it, that happened on a Friday, and then my wife and three kids under five and I were all on a plane on Tuesday, and we spent 10 days in Colorado, where my brother was living, and it was exhausting, and it was um, important, and good, and therapeutic, and terrible, and exhausting, and I, when we got back, I, it was the most tired I've ever been in my life. And we got home, and I got ready for bed, and I thought, tonight I'm going to sleep like I've never slept before. I just knew the moment my head hit the pillow, I was going to be out for like 36 hours. And the millisecond before my head hit the pillow, a thought occurred to me. There is nothing I can do to guarantee that that won't happen to me. There is nothing I can do to guarantee that the same thing won't happen to me. Because I could be in the best physical condition of my life. I could be, have, be in perfect physical condition all the time and then get hit by a truck. Right? And, and then the second thought that occurred to me is I actually have three years to go younger than my brother did. And I did not sleep the rest of the night. That is absolutely true. You can ask my wife. I, didn't even, I think I got out of bed and didn't even go back. And the reason why I'm talking about that now is because we were talking to our small group about how when you have an encounter with death and you have that realization, of the reality of death, it's almost like getting unplugged from the matrix. And you suddenly look around and see the world differently because we live in a culture that tries to deny death in every way possible. You can't fully deny death because it comes for us all, but we try to pretend like it is just this moment that will happen to you at some point in the distant future, and you don't have to think about it or worry about it until that one moment, it has nothing to do with you, until it comes for you at that, uh, that will surely be, you know, in 80, 90, 100 years, right? It'll be a very long time and it's that one moment. We, we don't, people don't re- tend to die in homes anymore. It tends to, we have places for that to happen. It used to be that a person would, they would be treated at home and the doctor would make house visits, but their nurses were their family members. And then they would die in the home, and then they would be displayed in the parlor, and then the family would prepare them and would dig the hole and would bury them, so that by the time you were an adult, every person, every woman had been a hospice nurse, and every man had dug a grave. That was the kind of contact that we used to have with death, and we used to just know that it's, it's a part of our life. Now, we have outsourced all of that. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but the result is that it creates this opportunity where we can pretend like death is this rare thing that you don't have to think about because not, it's not really gonna happen to you except in the hazy future. Even though there's lots of death on television, we, that tends to reinforce that death is an unusual thing because the deaths are always surprises, shocking, something that you know would never happen to you because it's some crime TV show and those things are rare. All of this is to keep us from thinking about death and, from, and to get us thinking that it only happens at one moment in our lives. And what I've become very aware of is that it actually touches every moment of our lives. So you may be listening to me talking and thinking, wow, man, rough year to show up to Turner Christian Church on Easter because the senior pastor is morbid. And that's what it feels like when we are part of this culture that says that death is unusual, that when somebody says, you know, we're all going to die, right? Like that's, that's morbid thinking. It's actually completely rational, obvious thinking, right? We just choose not to think about it. But why am I bringing this up today? The reason I'm bringing this up today, why it's so important for, to me to talk about this on Easter is because what I've realized is that the more we try and repress the reality of death, the more we uh, inoculate ourselves to the full impact of the gospel. Because when we say that death doesn't matter, that's an illusion. We're wrong, it's going to come for all of us. That illusion will get shattered for every one of us at some point. But as long as we live under that illusion, then we don't see a major reason for the gospel to change our lives. And I'm not talking actually about fear of where you're gonna go whether you're going to go to the good place or the bad place. I used to think that you know we focus too much on the afterlife and we don't talk enough about what the gospel means for us today. And what I've realized is that those two can't be separated. That that we need to understand the way death touches us every day, so that we can then see how resurrection changes us, touches us every day, and we can see how the resurrection of Jesus Christ transforms us as people. See, what happens when we don't think about death, when we think about death as little as we do in America, and when we put it in this one category, but it's this moment that will happen to you someday along the line, we can't actually make sense of some of the statements that Jesus makes. For instance, this is complete gibberish. This is um, something that Jesus says to Martha after her brother died. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And if we think about death the way our American culture does, that statement makes absolutely no sense. First of all, if you die, you've died. How can you live even though you die? And Second of all, how can you say that if we live by believing in him, that we'll never die? Because Lazarus did die. And you know what? He's actually going to die again. If death is just that one moment, then this statement makes no sense. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to talk. We're going we're to talk about what death really means in our lives, why it is that we don't want to talk about it, and we're going to face it. And then we're going to talk about how the resurrection addresses the sting of death in our lives. Before we do that, just, just a reminder one more time. He is risen. Right? Okay, I want you to remember that's where we're going. Okay? So let's talk about death. We all know that every one of us is going to die, right? We don't think about it, but we know it. Up here, we're all going to die. In fact, I'll be generous. I'll say in 150 years, everyone who is currently in this building will be dead, right? Even my six-month-old daughter, who's in the foyer right now, will be gone by then, Okay? It's going to happen to all of us. That means that you are going to, your heart is going to stop beating, you're going to die. Okay? don't like to think about it, but we all know it's true. But I think there's another layer to that. There's another layer to the fact that we are going to die, which is that we, I, I, think, it be, I think it would be easier for us to accept that if we thought the world was going to die with us. Right? Because here's the thing, what death really says about us, what we feel like, we feel like we are the main characters of the story, right? My wife and I just finished playing this board game called uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood. And at the beginning of each chapter, you you get together the people who are playing and it says, each of you pick a character. One of you has to pick Robin Hood. Why? Because the story is about Robin Hood. If Robin Hood's gone, there's no story because he's the main character. And each one of us feels like the main character. Right? I am the main character of my story. The story can't go on without me. But here's the thing. We're all going to die. I'm going to die. And the world will keep going. Right? The world's not going to die with me. So the first point of, of sting, when we, is what death says about us, is that death means that the world can go on without me. I'm going to make this really personal. You may not be ready for this, okay? How many of you could tell me the names of at least one of your grandparents? How many of you can tell me the names of at least one of your great-grandparents? How about one of your great-great-grandparents? Great-great-great-grandparents. Great-great-great-great-grandparents. Okay, now how many of you can tell me something about their personality? From experience. Here's the thing. What do you think's gonna happen with your great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. The world moves on without us, and that's what we hate. I wanna be essential. I wanna be the main character, and death proves that that is a lie, that that is not true. And actually, one of the, the, it's interesting, the story that I keep going back to as I look at the significance of death is actually the story of the temptation of Eve. Because death was working its power before the first person ever died. Because, see, when God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree, because if you do, you'll die, what he was telling them in that command is, you're actually not essential. Like, they were made for this amazing job that he, he tailor made them for this job, but they can't hold him hostage to that. If they don't follow his design, They are are going to die, but the garden won't die with them. And so when the serpent tempts Eve, he knows exactly what to tell her. He says, you will not die. That doesn't make any sense. You're needed. God knows that when you eat from that tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Because that's where you think your story is going. That's where your story should go. So I am essential. I I am God. I am more than this mortal body. That's what we all want to hear. But death tells us that that's not true. And here's the thing. When we realize that the world is going to go on without us, then death also tells us for a certain fact that I can and will miss out on joy in this world. Well, Don't get ahead of me. We are going to miss out right? Because you have limited opportunities, you're only here a certain amount of time, there are things, and our culture talks a lot, I think this is good for us to acknowledge, the fear of missing out, right? It drives all of us, being afraid of missing out on things. And what that does, this fear of missing out, realizing that we're not going to be able to taste every joy, it actually, or and we aren't going to be able to taste any particular joy forever, it actually adds this bitter sweetness to all of our joy. This is how death touches us every day. Death touches me as a parent every day. Here's how. When Casey and I have decided that um, we have three children, and we're good with that. okay? Three is all we need. But what that means is that every stage we go through with Maggie is bittersweet because it's the last time that we're going to go through that stage, right? As much as we hate changing diapers, there will be a sense when we change the last one and we miss it, right? We miss wow. those stages, wow. guys. Okay, maybe not changing diapers, but, you know? And, and the reality is, I mean, if we were immortal, we wouldn't have to miss out on that, right? Like, imagine if you, you know, empty nesters, imagine that you were still 25 when your house emptied right? And you were, you were never going to get any older than 25. You might think, you let's take let's take 20 years off and then we'll have another litter, right? Like, it would change everything, right? And I don't think I haven't noticed, some of you, when you hold my daughter, I see some of you are like that close to doing it anyway, even though you're not immortal, right? Like, I see some of the looks that wives give their husbands when they hold Charlie or Maggie. I know my daughter's a part. Um, but the point is that, that mortality limits us. And it means that we are always aware of the limited chances we're going to have. Even when we're kids, that's one of the reasons why high school is so intense. It's because we put so much value into this four-year experience, and it is so short. We have such high expectations of what you're going to accomplish in that time, and you cannot do it all. Right? No human being can do everything that we want a high schooler to do in four years to get the full high school experience. So it touches us all the time. And this is, it it touched Eve too, because all of a sudden as Eve starts thinking about her mortality, she looks at the tree and then she notices the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. And you know what? She didn't want to miss out. She had every other tree in the garden, but she didn't care about any of those trees in that moment. She cared about the one that she might miss out on. And here's what happens for us when we realize I've only got one shot. I'm gonna, I can miss out on the things that I really want. And I don't want to be that kind of person. I want to get everything. Then we realize that I have to fight to get what I want out of life. We talked last week about how the fear of death changes our priorities because it's like when you're in the pool and i don't know if you've ever been in a pool I, i'm not a super strong swimmer so i'll be like fine and then all of a sudden i'll start to flounder and just make a complete fool of myself in the middle of the pool right like my sense of trying to be cool disappears because all i care about is not drowning right and so i'm flailing at, you know and not only is my sense of trying to be cool gone in that moment but also my sense of loving my neighbors and being respectful of personal space and things like that. i will grab onto to whoever's closest right like all the rules go out the window because all of a sudden my needs have jumped to the front of the list and this is what happens to us as a lifestyle is that we realize i've got limited time i've got limited chances so yeah i'm going to elbow my way to the front of the potluck line right i am going to push my way up there and i'm i'm going to take i you know i know that the fried chicken does not last for seconds so i'm going to take all the fried chicken i want the first time around because that's the way I get enough fried chicken. And we do that as a lifestyle. This is what happened to Eve. All of a sudden, even though the creator of the universe had given her one rule, one rule, she was willing to break it because she was afraid of missing out. And so when she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. See, she's not being selfish. She wants to share this with her husband, but she wants to make sure that she does not miss out. She will do anything to make sure that she gets to be exactly who she wants to be because we are essentials. Sora Kierkegaard said that human beings are half angel, half animal. Right? We are, we're like spiritual, eternal being, mental beings. We can do, think of whatever we want, be all kinds of creative, but then we're also animals that have bodily functions and limitations and those kinds of things, and we don't want those limitations. We want to just be angels. And so we do our best to fight against that and to get everything we can and accumulate every can, everything we can and pretend that we're not also animal. We're not also physical. And unfortunately, the thing is, In our battle against death all of us lose eventually right i mentioned this last week i was reading a book on death and um on on hope in death and the guy pointed out that um, any survival story that you read is a survival story only because they stopped the story too early right like you only see unbroken it's an amazing survival story of a guy who was an Olympic runner. He ran in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, and then he became a bombardier in the Pacific in World War II, and then he was shot down, and he was adrift in the ocean, and then they were uh, captured by the Japanese, and he spent he was tortured in a Japanese internment camp, but he, he was unbroken through all of it, and he survived the war. And it's this great survival story only because of the year they made it. If they had made it a few years later, after he died like his whole life is not a survival story at least not in his physical life he later became an evangelist he became a Christian and an evangelist and forgave his captors and so he, well, he uh, is a survivor in the sense that we're going to talk about but we all end up losing the battle with death and that means that uh, death means that my fight against death is futile and therefore wasteful because every, all the Prices that I pay to fight against death are ultimately wasted, right? Because I still lost. Think of the the what is it? Think of all the people that are really famous in the world that are, you know, famous actors and actresses, famous entrepreneurs. Like, what do they all have in common? Common. What do they all have to give up to get there? Relationships, right? Family. Like, you know anything about like? Um, you know, Bill Gates just had to get a divorce. Uh, uh, Steve Jobs had a horrible relationship with his daughter. Um, I mean, what's the joke about Hollywood marriages, right? I, like, to, to really pursue immortality in any of the routes that we allow people, you have to leave human wreckage in your wake. In your, in your, uh, wake. And you still end up failing. Or what, what happened when Eve ate from the fruit? Because the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. She shared the fruit with her husband, and the very first thing that it did was it broke their relationship. It, created, it alienated them from each other. They had to cover themselves. And then all of this motivated out of being afraid of the limitations of death and what's the ultimate consequence of eating from the tree? Death. The Lord God said, "'The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil.'" he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. This is ultimately the cycle of death and sin. That being mortal drives us, motivates us to sin, to do horrible things to other people, to try and comfort ourselves and to try and find immortality, to try and and distract ourselves from our mortality. And then that sin ultimately leads us back into death because sin is destructive. And it's this vicious cycle that we get caught up in. And that cycle, that full weight of death that says you aren't important, you don't really matter, you're going to be forgotten and all of your joy is fleeting and tainted and and you're going to have to fight for what little you get. All that, that is, say, death, with a capital D. Without Jesus, that's what death means. It's so much more than just the moment your body stops functioning. Let's call that death with a lowercase d. And when you recognize those two types of death, then you're actually able to understand what Jesus is saying about the resurrection. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, even though their heart stops functioning, they will still be able to truly live in this life. And the one who lives by believing in me, they will never die. Capital D, die. They will never experience the death of oblivion that we've been describing. That's what he's saying. That's how Jesus can say, if you believe in me, you will never die. Because you will, you, your body will stop functioning. You will perish. You will die in the physical sense. But this huge existential crushing weight of death, that kind of death, the resurrection frees us from that. And that's what we're here to celebrate. So let me now go back and explain to you how the resurrection, the fact that Jesus is alive, answers the sting of death because it really does speak against what death tells us about ourselves. Now, what we really want to hear is we really want to hear that uh, we do, we are, that I am essential. I want Jesus to tell me, you are essential, the world can't go on without you, death is wrong about that. He doesn't actually disagree with that. The truth is, none of us are needed. Which I think is a good thing. I don't think I'd want to carry the weight that the world actually needs me. But, The resurrection tells us that you are wanted. Because that's the whole reason Jesus came, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus didn't come and die on the cross because it was essential to the the ongoing of God's creation. He did that because it was essential to us being able to be a part of it, and he didn't want to leave us out of his new creation. You are desperately wanted by the creator of the universe, so much so that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. I said this before, that value is um, subjective, right? How much something is worth depends on how much someone is willing to pay for it. That's what the stock market tells you. It tells you on a given day, this is how much someone is willing to pay for this stock. And when we're talking about what we are worth, ultimately the price is what is someone willing to pay for you? And the price is set by Jesus Christ. He paid his life for you. So you're not essential to the world. You're not needed. And I think sometimes that will lead us into universalism, to saying, well, of course, God will save all of us no matter what, because we're all needed. It feeds that desire to say, I'm needed in the world. We're not needed in the world, but we're wanted to be a part of God's good design. And so Jesus gave his life to open the door so that we could be part of his good, eternal design. As long as we're willing to actually be a part of that. right? You don't get to carry death with you. You don't get to carry selfishness with you into that new design. So we have to be willing to let that go. But eternal life is available to us because Jesus is alive. And that completely changes the math. Because death tells us that your joy is fleeting. You're headed toward annihilation and that means that you're not going to get all the joy you want and the joy you will get you're gonna, not going to like because you're going to know that it's running out. But when we know that resurrection life is ahead of us then what that tells us is it's not actually our suffering or our, our joys that are fleeting. Our sufferings are are fleeting and our joy is forever now our sufferings can be intense and I don't want anybody to hear that you should like you know it shouldn't hurt because sometimes that's what we do Jesus is alive so so we shouldn't be sad about the suffering in our lives that's not the Bible nowhere says that what it says is that we can endure because we know that suffering is not the rule of our existence Paul says in 2 Corinthians, We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. What truly lasts, what is eternal, is what is unseen the eternal life that we have with Jesus. And that means that the suffering, real and intense as it is in this world, is, n- does not define us. So, much, so often, I think the, the weight of our suffering and the impact of our joy depends on how we let them define us. And if we feel, uh, my life is suffering... And my joy is fleeting. And that's the story that's being told now. It makes that weight so much more oppressive. But if we know that the pain is what is fleeting, as intense as it is, and joy is what is eternal, it changes the story, right? And if you think about it, it doesn't take much joy. If it's, if it's eternal, any amount of joy will un- outweigh any amount of suffering, right? Like an eternal back scratch, which sounds amazing. I love a good backstory. like Even that, just for eternity, eventually will outweigh any suffering, right? Because it's eternal. When you do the math, your life on this earth, no matter how long you live, is 0% of an eternal life. And so it changes the story that's being told. And it gives us the strength to endure through transitory suffering, as intense as it is, because our story is one of eternal joy. And that realization is what really has the power to transform us. Because when we realize that we don't have to fight for scraps of joy, it changes our mentality. It takes away that note of desperation that so often seeps into even the church. Because we don't actually have to fight for this life. I think that this is, I I don't know if it's, all human beings all the time, or just our culture on our time, but what I see in myself and the culture around us culture around us, including the church, is that this is our achilles heel. I rarely actually see a difference between Christian culture and non Christian culture in our world in terms of that note of shrill desperation, that fear of missing out um, we, that that enters into our Um, Our social interactions, it enters into the way we treat each other. It enters into our politics. All the time, we still have that same note of, I'm desperate not to miss out. But we don't have to fight for scraps of joy. We must not fight for scraps of joy. And this is what undergirds everything that Jesus teaches us. We talked about this in the sunrise service. Look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount. This passage is called the Beatitudes. And Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think, just now, we talked about this last Sunday too, didn't we? It's still good, it's still true. The point is that when you look at these things, these are, no, we, looked, we were in 1 Corinthians 13. It's been a long week, there's a lot of things that happened this week. Okay, so, when you look at these things, he says, blessed are the meek. Well, death tells us that the meek are not blessed. The meek are wasting their time because we have to fight for what we want in this life. If you waste time being meek, you're going to miss out. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? No, no, no. Death says that's going to get in the way. You don't have time to hunger and thirst for righteousness because you're going to miss out on things and you're going to die and be gone anyway, and who cares how righteous it was? Mercy? Who has time for mercy? You're not going to get mercy. Being pure, in heart, pure of heart is a waste of time. Unless the resurrection is true and the math changes because the meek inherit the earth through resurrection. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are filled, not in this life, but they're, they're filled in eternity. The merciful are shown mercy in the resurrection. The pure in heart see God in the resurrection. The peacemakers are called children of God in the resurrection. Those who are persecuted receive the kingdom, not in this life, but in the resurrection. Those kinds of people are only blessed if what Jesus says about eternal life is true. Those, kinds of, those people are only blessed if the tomb really is empty. Because they're losing, they are consciously losing the fight for scraps of joy. They are stepping back from the fighting for the sake of being of following God's design, for the sake of loving the way God calls us to love. And if those scraps are all there is, that's the worst decision you can make. But if we know that God that God supports us in our in our drive to be like Him, that God cuts the checks for us, right? That, that there is resurrection waiting, then we know we don't have to fight over those scraps and we can be the kinds of people that God calls us to be. This is why eternity, our eternal fate, and our, life in, our behavior in this life are intertwined and you can't talk about one without the other because the resurrection changes the math and we live our day-to-day life by the numbers. We live our life making decisions based on how I can get what really matters how i can have the life that really matters and here's the thing the last thing about the resurrection see death says ultimately it doesn't matter you're going to die and it's all meaningless there's an entire book of the old testament ecclesiastes about how under the under the sun everything is meaningless because you're going to end up dying and it's all futile anyway that's what death tells us and there are a lot of things in this life that even in the new testament are still futile they're still pointless but the resurrection tells us that nothing we do in service of Jesus is wasted, guaranteed. What you do in service of Jesus is never wasted. See, Paul, in the book of Philippians, he lists his credentials, right? All the different, all the different things that are hanging on his wall as a Pharisee, his, his diplomas and everything. Like, here's, here's all, my, all my notches, here's everything that's cool about me. And then he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. We hang our hats on a lot of accomplishments. I have pieces of paper framed on my wall that are very important to me because I worked really hard and spent a lot of money to get them. And you know what? Someday my kids are going to throw them away. Right? Someday my kids are going to throw, and that's okay because they didn't work to get them and they don't get the benefit of the diploma, so why should they keep them? But they matter a lot to me because I think that's, that's what's really going to matter. It'll be very quickly forgotten. What will end up mattering when I go is whether I have known and loved and followed Jesus. And if I, if I fail, I have had some pretty big failures in my life. Those failures won't matter either if I've known Jesus. Ultimately, the resurrection is the ultimate spoiler because it tells us who wins. We know who wins in the end, and our choice is which side are we going to be on. Right? And, that, and so the hope that we have in the book of Romans, we, I'm going to read you a long passage from Romans because it's just Paul coming at this, this certain hope from every angle, talking about how when you join the side of Jesus who is alive, the ending's already written and you know who wins. He says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What he's saying is, God didn't start this thing without knowing where it was going to end. If he started saving you, he's going to finish it. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That is sure and certain hope. And it all rests on the resurrection. It all rests on the fact that Jesus is alive. And it is a fact, it is one of the best attested facts in ancient history, that Jesus is alive. And that resurrection is available to us. And so now we can come back to that original statement that we've been looking at. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. They can live a true and full life without fear of death, this side of the grave even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never truly finally die. But he ends this with a question, the most important question. Do you believe this? And the question for you today is, do you believe this? Because here's the thing, we do the same thing with the resurrection that we do with death. I know, I've always known up here that I was going to die, but it took uh, being touched very closely by death for it to make it in here, that I'm going to die, and to change the way that I live. The question is, do you know that Jesus is alive here? But more importantly, do you know he's alive here? Does it change the way you live? Do you live as if he's alive? Because some of you are facing the question right now, do I actually believe that he's alive? Will I commit my life to Him to the fact that he is alive? And today is the best day for you to make that commitment. But even if you've already committed to saying, I, I believe that he is alive today, we every day have to again ask ourselves, do I believe it here? Am I living it out here? So every one of us today, no matter where you are in your walk with Jesus, faces a choice a challenge to take the next step walking in the light of the resurrection. And ask our worship team to come up as I close us in prayer. Dear Father, we are so thankful for the hope of the resurrection. Father, we have so many defense mechanisms and denials to keep us away from the fear of death, and in truth, you offer us freedom from death in your gospel, in your son. So Father, we want... To live in hope and joy, not because we refuse to think about what the future holds, but because we know what the future holds, and it holds joy, eternal joy in knowing you. Father, we want that joy to so fill us that we can't help but share it with those around us. That we can't help but have our hearts go out to those who are still caught in the fear of death. We want to have hearts that can't help but share with them the only true solution, the only true hope, which is the resurrection of your son. Father, we are so thankful that we can gather here in joy and bright colors because we know that the final word you spoke is life. And we can live a life as if we're never going to die. We can love without fear. We can forgive without limit. We can give without hesitation because your son lives and pray this in his name amen Turner Christian Church we believe that a fully functioning disciple of Jesus connects with their church and connects with God and his church grows in faith and love and serves their community and world and we also believe that when you hear the gospel preached you have a chance to respond by taking whatever the next step is for you in your journey with Christ and so we encourage you as we go into our last song to think seriously think What is the next step God is calling you to? It might be giving your life to Jesus, or it might be uh, connecting.